0: It's just shenanigans upon shenanigans upon shenanigans. The greatest disturbers of the gambling element were Herman Rosenthal, the informer, and Charles Becker, the raider.
1: Becker said to Rose on multiple occasions that Rosenthal needed to get croaked.
0: Why punish the small fry? It's the big fish who should be worried.
1: These kind of things are still happening in the justice system today.
0: In July of 1912, Times Square echoed with gunfire. Bookie Herman Rosenthal was gunned down publicly after threatening to unveil a web of police corruption. The murder was pinned on his former friend, New York police officer Lieutenant Charles Becker, and details were printed in every newspaper in America about the so-called trial of the century, but certainly not all the details. Newsboys turned gangsters held the secrets of the kings of New York. Happy New Year. We made it. We made it. Woo. It was pretty touch and go for a bit at the end, but we're here. It's 2024. We made it. And we made it to chapter six of our story too, which I think is a pretty big deal as well. Yeah. I hope we're halfway through the season. If all goes to plan, we'll have episode 12 by the anniversary of the shooting that's going to come up in the summer in July.
1: Yes. And we're also really, really hoping that something big will happen this summer. Something big for us that we hope will also wrap up the season.
0: More than anything, we've hit this milestone. I think it's a huge milestone. Yeah. and. We're still here, which is awesome.
1: And we have more listeners all the time. And it's been easier to put together the story with every episode. Just imagine 12 episodes in. This is our biggest chunk of characters that we have to go through in a single sitting. Four, to be precise, with a few key players making cameo
0: appearances. In chapter six, we're talking about The stool pigeons, the dirty rat bastards and all-around perjuring sleazebags who took the plea deal from District Attorney Whitman, who flaunted their lies before the law, who were blatant about it and walked free at the end of the trials while five lives were sacrificed in the electric chair.
1: And on our roster today, we have Jacob Baldy Jack Rose Rosenzweig who is Becker's bag ban, his graph collector, and a gambler. We also have Sam Sheps, an opium smuggler, a jeweler, and the alleged paymaster to the gunman. Harry Vallon, the silent mystery man with a bad coke habit, who at one time or another worked for Jack Rose. Bridgie Weber, Rosenthal's frenemy, and his biggest rival in the gambling scene of the Tenderloin.
0: And our special guests in this episode, there are two gentlemen that we haven't really talked much about. One is a mysterious man named Itsky. and the other is Henry H. Klein, who we did mention last time. He is the author of Sacrificed. He was a lawyer, and he authored other several publications that were meant to clear Becker's name. I am going to do a preface here. Later in his career, Klein did Kind of go off the deep end with conspiracy theories, did publish anti-Semitic writings even though he was Jewish himself. Things got a little weird, and we do have to take his writing with a grain of salt, but I do think he was very genuinely putting in a lot of effort to getting Becker's name cleared for many reasons, and we don't really have any reason to believe that what he published in this particular case has anything but truth to it. We start with Jack Rose,
1: since he gave the longest and the most damning testimony. Fun fact, in some circles, it was believed that the Jack Rose cocktail, which was popularized in the 1920s and 30s, was named after him, though it was more likely invented by a Newark, New Jersey mixologist who had the same name. The cocktail fell out of favor partly because of it being associated with the gambler, though it's been making a comeback in more recent years.
0: We'll post the recipe on our socials because it sounds pretty tasty.
1: (laughs) Well, Rose was born in Poland in 1876 and he was raised in Connecticut. When he was four years old, he contracted typhoid, which caused alopecia universalis, and it left him with no hair on any part of his body, and this would become his main identifying feature and the source of many nicknames, baldy, billiard ball, and so on. He ran a minor gambling house in Connecticut, and he even founded an early minor league baseball team he dubbed the Rosebuds. He moved to New York in pursuit of bigger and better things, the American Dream, and for him that meant opening a fairly successful gambling parlor on 2nd Avenue, which was called the Rosebud. So creative. And soon enough, it became a popular underworld hangout for those who associated with Monk Eastman and his gang, with Jack Selig and the Lennox Boys, and a lot of the players that we've covered at length in our previous episodes. So these guys all go way back. Becker raided the Rosebud with his strong arm squad, and he allegedly made a deal with Rose to take a 25% weekly cut in exchange for not shutting the place down. And moreover, Becker took Rose on as a collector from other gambling dens that he grafted protection money from. It was more convenient to have one of their own skim from the gamblers than a cop going through the place and getting caught red-handed.
0: During the murder trial, some witnesses came forward claiming that Becker was seen meeting with Rose at the Union Hotel, as well as other places. We mentioned the Lafayette Baths before, and Rose would have these clandestine meetings with Becker where he would hand over packages, supposedly these contained cash bribes that Rose had collected for Becker every week. Rose
1: was a snitch through and through, and Becker used this to his advantage to infiltrate gambling and vice and continue with the double whammy of collecting protection money and raiding them anyway in order to keep the bosses happy. At least this is how he presented it during the trial. And according to testimonies, Becker said to Rose on multiple occasions that Rosenthal needed to get Croke, which Rose was only too happy to facilitate. He was connected to hiring Zelig and his boys, while the getaway car, the Gray Packard touring sedan, was a favorite of his to hire for jobs around town. At face value, Rose was just as, if not more complicit, in the murder than Becker was.
0: Going one step further, according to Albert Fried in his 1980 book *The Rise and Fall of the Jewish Gangster in America*, Rose may have even known about Zelig's demise. Sorry, let me correct myself. The robbery gone wrong by accident, where Zelig got shot two days before he was supposed to testify for Becker, but it was nothing at all connected to the case. Allegedly, Rose said, "Zelig will never live to see the trial start. Watch, he'll be the next one they get. There were also rumors that, prior to this whole thing going down, Rose was willing to put up upwards of $2,000 to anyone that would take Rosenthal out. In connection to this case, Rose turned himself into the police and would become the star witness against Becker. During the trial, his testimony and cross-examination went for so long that Becker's attorney, McIntyre, actually had to beg the judge to stop the questioning to carry it on to the next day because he was just so exhausted. The judge refused and basically ended the examination at that. It was also no secret that Rose was granted immunity by District Attorney Whitman in exchange for his testimony. It was so painfully obvious that the deck was being stacked against Becker from the get-go, but the question at this point is still, why? When he was arrested as a suspect in Rosenthal's murder, Rose was quickly transferred from the tombs, where Becker was uh, arrested as well, as well as Jack Sullivan and a few others. Rose was transferred to the West End prison with Sheps, Weber, and Valen. And they lived there like kings and basically ran the place. They got a cushy deal. They would order in meals every night, including being brought in from Delmonico's and other high end restaurants. They were allowed to roam the halls outside of their cells. And there was a particular article, if I remember correctly, where they got their watchmen in trouble because they were horsing around so much and so obnoxiously that they were bothering other inmates who complained. And it was in the West End prison that Rose and Sheps allegedly tried to bribe our friend Jack Sullivan into going in with them on this testimony and testifying against his friend Becker. They allegedly offered him a stake in a $25,000 hotel business, as long as he would take their side and testify against Becker that he would be kind of a shoo-in and maybe get immunity as well. Jack refused and instead demanded to be transferred back to the tombs just so that he wouldn't have to be around these stooges any longer than he needed to be.
1: So now this brings us to Sam Sheps. He ran off to Hot Springs, Arkansas, which was the place to go for many a criminal looking to get away from the daily grind. He would communicate with Rose, who sent him letters instructing him to lay low for a little while longer until things blew over. One such letter was intercepted by the local police, who were able to finally make the arrest, and he was brought back to New York. Not much is known about Sheps, other than that he was of Hungarian descent, and he was likely born in 1873. He had been involved with opium. He had a jewelry shop, which we could assume was an outlet for him to fence stolen goods, and he seems to have been a gopher for Rose, Valen, and Weber.
0: Sheps blatantly flaunted his immunity during the trial. He is cited as grinning, smirking, and giving noncommittal answers, and driving Becker's attorney up the wall just by being an absolute shit. To quote from A wonderful book that was actually recommended to us by one of our sources. It's a book from 1961 by Jonathan Root called The Life and Bad Times of Charlie Becker. And I'm actually going to read directly from here where Sheps is being questioned. He's asked, have you been told to say Rose never discussed anything with you? The answer is no. Well, what did you talk about? The weather. McIntyre. Oh, the sun came up and the clouds were in the sky and things like that. Sheps says, no. McIntyre, well, what did you say? Sheps, that it was a nice day. McIntyre asks why Sam Sheps went with Rose and Valen to the house of Rosenthal's ex-wife. Sheps, for the pleasure of the ride. McIntyre, why did you go inside the house? Sheps registers astonishment. Well, you wouldn't want me to wait outside, would you? There is constant laughter in the courtroom. As the question continues, he's asked, didn't you know that he was going to locate the victim? But Weber, Shep says, I did not. Did you hear any of the gunmen say anything then? I did not. Coming down in the automobile with Dago Frank, was anything said? I didn't hear anything. This is the man that's allegedly sitting in the passenger seat at the front. Did you hear Weber when he came back and said Rosenthal is at the Metropole? Yes. And were you not suspicious? Suspicious of what? No. After the gunman went out, did you ask why? No. I started to leave and Rose stopped me. Did you ask Rose what Weber had meant when he said Rosenthal was at the Metropole? No. Weren't you curious? No. This testimony continues in... This fashion until Sam Sheps just gets dismissed because he's going to give McIntyre coronary at this point. According to the mayor of Hot Springs, Thomas Pettit, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who also happened to be the manager of the hotel where Sheps was confined prior to his transfer back to New York, Sheps said to him that he wouldn't speak with anyone until he's spoken to D.A. Whitman. He says, It's up to me to make the best bargain I can. One man confesses, another corroborates, but it takes the third man to, the, to make the case against the fourth man. I am the third man. He also claimed to be the keynote to the whole situation in New York, quote unquote. So after the initial trial in October of 1912 against Becker, Sheps offered a vaudeville contract to talk about his good times in crime, I guess. From there, he traveled to London where he would send Helen Becker a letter. This is between the original trial and the retrial. And he claimed that he would testify for Becker and tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth during the retrial. And it would only cost her a mere $10,000 to get him to do so. As you can imagine, Helen either politely ignored the request or offer while mentally wanting to tell him to shove it shit.
1: (laughs) Our third man is Harry Valen or Harry Valinsky. There is so little about him that he's basically a shadow person. We know he ran in gambling circles and was closely associated with Jack Rose, with Zelig, and a lot of them. So along with Rose, he has a very distinct appearance. He's pretty easy to identify as being at the Metropole on the night of the shooting. Valen has crazy eyes. He has a very distinct nose, large ears, some like, I don't know, just very high cheekbones. He looks very distinct. Valen gave himself up willingly on July 23rd, 1912, which surprised the lieutenant on duty at the police headquarters. He simply walked in and he mentioned that he had heard the police were looking for him, and it was such a surprise that Lieutenant McNally had Valen wait because there were no detectives around at the moment to arrest him. And Valen did. He was questioned separately by the Deputy Commissioner Dowerty and by District Attorney Whitman. While Valen never confessed fully, he at least corroborated that the driver of the getaway car was William Shapiro was correct in saying that Valen had been in the car that night. In the early stages of the investigation, Rose claimed that Valen wasn't even with them. We do have a photo which we believe is Valen, Sam Paul, and Louis Libby who was the other driver of the Grey Packard. They are outside of the courthouse waiting to see the gunman's jury on November 12th, 1912.
0: Sam Paul is a character we're going to talk about at a later point. But suffice to say that when you look at this photo, and we'll put it up on our socials, Valen sticks out like a sore thumb instantly. And it's a little curious to see the three of them standing around in a crowd of people waiting to hear what's going to happen to the gunmen because they were there to protect their own hides. This brings us to our last man of four, William Bridgie Weber. He was nicknamed Bridgie because of a past relationship with a streetwalker whose name was Bridget. So the nickname stuck. In his early days, Weber partnered with Harry Valen. They ran Stuss Games. They had gambling interests. They had an opium den on Pell Street and a poker room on 42nd and 6th, which is just a mere stone's throw away from the Metropole at 43rd and 7th. Eventually, Weber's pool room would gain some notoriety. It was kind of the place to be in the Tenderloin. He was there before Rosenthal opened up his place, and it became a frequent hangout for everyone from the Lennox gang. To Becker and his cops as well. In
1: 1911, Rosenthal hired to have Weber severely beaten, and then while Weber was in recovery, Rosenthal tried to lure the customers away from Weber's San Susi music hall, which justifiably upset Weber even more. And supposedly, the bomb that we talked about back in our Rosenthal episode was Weber doing this in retaliation. The two would go after one another over the years, stealing each other's customers, uh, and Rosenthal apparently stole some of the working girls from Weber when he opened his place in the Tenderloin, And it was seen as a blatant challenge to Weber, Valen, and the rest.
0: And it was Weber's place that the gang gathered on on the night of Rosenthal's murder. It was Weber that went over to the Metropole to check whether Rosenthal was there, and it was on his signal that the whole crew took off to carry out the dirty deed. So the official story, just the brass tacks, it was that the four gunmen traveled by car to the Metropole with Rose, and Ballin in the car with them with Shapiro driving. Once they got there, an unidentified man went into the restaurant to tell Rosenthal that somebody was asking for him outside. It seemed Rosenthal was expecting that. He followed. As soon as he stepped out, the gunman opened fire, shot Rosenthal dead, and fled the scene. The end. Jonathan Root suggests an alternate theory. And there's about three different takes to the story. So this is the second. He suggests that Rose, Weber, and Valin worked together to kill as many birds with a single stone as they could. You see, Jag Zelig, the leader of the Lennox gang, was dealing with an illegal weapons charge, as we mentioned in the last episode. Zelig was really trying not to be involved in this case whatsoever, but he also blamed Rose for framing him, that Rose had called in some favors with dirty cops to arrest Zelig and plant the gun in his jacket pocket because Rose wanted to get him out of the picture as kind of a prominent figure in this whole gambling gangland war situation that was brewing. Rose, wanting to prove that he had nothing to do with Zelig's arrest, arranged with Frank Cervici, one of our four shooters, to meet at Weber's pool room to have a meeting with Jack Rose and the two arresting detectives to have a conversation that would prove that they could exonerate Zelig. Obviously, the four shooters, it was in their interest to get their boss back and to get their boss out of whatever legal troubles he was in so they would show up. Seeing it as an opportunity to get rid of more rivals, Rose redirected Frank and the others to the Metropole, claiming that the detectives would meet them there. At the same time, Rose, Valen, and Weber plotted to get rid of Rosenthal, and with the Lennox boys right there to take the fall, it was the perfect opportunity for a frame-up. Not only would they get rid of Rosenthal, the squealer, but also Zelig by having his muscle arrested. So according to Root, Horowitz, Lefty, and Whitey weren't even armed. So the whole idea was that they would show up, somebody would shoot Rosenthal, and then the blame would fall on these four boys. This information is presented thoroughly by the counsel defending the four gunmen, but it's not enough to save their lives. During Becker's trial, his attorney says, The greatest disturbers of the gambling element in the Tenderloin, we assume, were Herman Rosenthal, the informer, and Charles Becker, the raider. They've gotten rid of Rosenthal, and now they're trying to get rid of their worst enemy, Charles Becker.
1: In his many publications, especially in the booklet from 1939, our dear friend Henry Klein states that it was Harry Vallon that pulled the trigger and that the gun belonged to Whitey. He's the one that fetches Rosenthal from the Metropole, according to Jonathan Root. And it's the mystery gunman, Itzky that takes the first shot and Valen shoots the second. We know absolutely nothing about Itzky other than that he was conveniently present at Weber's that night and he followed the group to the Metropole. So was this all planned in advance in some sort of Triple backstabbing, or were they supposed to stage the kidnapping and took advantage of the opportunity?
0: Itsky was a really odd character because he gets thrown in at the last minute during a lot of the testimony that he just seems to be this shadow. And he was actually like a known gun for hire that would hang hang around weber and and Rose. But he comes in at the 11th hour, essentially, that he's mentioned, that it wasn't anybody else. It was just this guy. After the trial, Rose was offered $1,000 to appear in vaudeville and to lecture on crime. He would go on to do a tour across the country, speaking in churches and preach against the evils of crime and vice, and how now he was a reformed man and no longer living that. How terrible was it that he was so tempted by all of these things? According to his obituary from 1947, he even lectured at army training camps in 1917, preaching against the evils of gambling. And Henry Klein and the affidavits that he collected claims that Rose shamelessly admitted that he had the power to order everything from robbery to murder during these lectures, openly flaunting the immunity he received from District Attorney Whitman, who, by the point of these lectures, was governor, writing the coattails of this case to the governorship. Sam Sheps continued a life of opportunism. In 1921, he was running an antiques and jewelry store on Madison Avenue. And in 1933, he and his brother Nathan were arrested and charged for falsifying checks and depositing them into their business bank accounts to the tune of over $10,000 of 1933 money.
1: With Jack Rose on the road, with his preaching, and Shep's running an antiques business, it seemed just a little too convenient. And maybe they were just a bit better at running yet another scheme.
0: Here's my favorite bit of these three stooges. In 1913, so, just after the first trial, and when the retrial were, goes to the grand jury, Rose, Sheps, and Valen produce and star in a film of their own making called The Wages of Sin, where they are literally preaching about how terrible crime is and how they're now reformed. Look at how good of people they are, but also that they've learned from their past when the film premiered in New York. It was blackballed. The film was not shown in New York because the cops showed up and shut it down in a show of support for Becker. So the solution was for Shep's to go to Paris and try to push the the screening through there and the police there shut down the premiere in a show of solidarity with their New York counterparts. It's just shenanigans upon shenanigans upon shenanigans. In September of 1936, Henry Klein, the very same that wrote a lot of our sources, he attempted to reopen the case against Jack Rose and Harry Vallon. By this point, Sam Sheps had passed away uh, in January of 1936. Klein demands that Rose and Vallon be rearrested and put to trial for their involvement with the murder. At that point, the district attorney, William C. Dodge, refused, unless Klein could produce new evidence that was not presented originally to Whitman in 1912. We see this recurring quite a bit with a lot of the attempts for the retrial and appeals and everything else, where evidence is presented that wasn't originally presented during the trial, but had existed. And so, on a technicality, I would say it's a technicality. It is dismissed because it's not new evidence. It was there from the beginning. It was just withheld in order to protect certain individuals, such as Tim Sullivan. The other thing that's really interesting to me for timing is that Klein attempts to reopen the case against Rose and Valen in September. In August, so just a month before that, Klein manages to successfully have the indictment against Jack Sullivan dismissed by the Supreme Court. The indictment was against Jack was the murder charge with this case that hung over him for 24 years that they were unable to dismiss until then and Klein pushed for it to get dismissed. Once Jack is safe, that's when he goes after Rose and Valen. It just seems a little interesting of a coincidence. So, the 1939 booklet that we keep referring to is called Police Lieutenant Charles Becker Framed for the Murder of Herman Rosenthal. There's like absolutely no misinterpreting the purpose of this booklet. And this was really random find when I was in the archives at the New York Public Library. The booklet was marked as lost or like it was weirdly cataloged when I went to sign it out or to even find if it existed, somebody had to physically go down to the stacks and dig through books for about an hour and a half to see if this thing even existed in their catalogs. It did. It's awesome. It's basically a collection of all of these affidavits that Klein spent 15 years putting together. So one of the things that is mentioned in there is the attorney for Bridgie Weber, Harford T. Marshall, who provides an affidavit where Weber stated that Valen fired the shot which killed Rosenthal. This is the third possibility of what went down that night. Valen fired the shot that killed Rosenthal and upon repeated occasions reiterated again and again that as far as he knew, he being Weber, Becker had nothing to do with the murder. Further into the affidavit, Marshall adds, Weber stated to me that he would persist in making any statements that would save his own life, even though it be false. And for this, Harford T. Marshall actually refused to further represent Weber and had his name stricken from all records. He also describes how during the visits to the West End prison, he spoke with William Shapiro, the driver of the getaway car, who also confirmed that he witnessed Vallon take the shot and hop onto the footboards of the car. That it was valid. Who put the gun to Shapiro's head and told him to hurry up when the car was cut off by the streetcar along their escape route. We mentioned that Shapiro, he was driving erratically and doing his very best to get pulled over by just about any cop that he could that they could find en route. Another friend of the of the group of uh, Sheps and Weber and Valin, named Isidore Fishman, would visit them in jail almost daily. He heard Rose say that Whitman. The district attorney needs a Yerkle, which means victim. He wants Becker. The group gets a lawyer brought in by the name of Max D. Stoyer. I hope I'm pronouncing that right as well. This gentleman is a Tammany lawyer, very much paid for by Tammany. He represents Weber, and the really icky thing. I keep being a really gross understatement, is that Doyer was the lawyer who defended the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory after the fire of 1911 that took the lives of 146 young women and girls. It was a sweatshop that the escape routes were all locked because the owners didn't want the girls stepping out for a break. Is it at all surprising that a sleaze bag like that is brought in by Tammany to defend Weber? And then in 1953, Klein published his last pamphlet in association with this case, and it says, it's called My 40 Years' Fight for Justice. And it's this long-form essay where he explains that prior to becoming an attorney, he'd been a police reporter. He knew Rosenthal personally. He confirmed that Rosenthal had hired a thug to break Weber's jaw in uh, 1911, that in retaliation, Weber bombed his place at 116th. And there is a mention of an arrest made just around the corner from 116th of a man named Frank Costello for carrying an illegal firearm because he had been an enforcer for the club. So he was Rosenthal's enforcer. The very same Frank Costello would become top brass in the mob many years later. I think this really throws things together in the most frustrating way. I don't know how you feel about it. Because they they so obviously took a plea deal. Yeah. they. Absolutely just threw whoever under the bus that they were willing to to sacrifice just to get out.
1: All signs point to Valen. Yeah. As the main shooter. Even if itzki was involved, it does seem that, that Valen is the one that everybody remembers.
0: Yeah. There are several other Statements that Klein publishes in his 1939 pamphlet. So most of the testimonies that come up that Klein collects at least, and obviously these are very much leaning to proving that Becker didn't do it, there are eyewitnesses, there's a report from a cab driver that was in the area, and basically everybody identifies Valen as having been the one to run across the street and shoot Rosenthal. The story that Klein sticks with, it goes something along the lines of that this was supposed to be a staged kidnapping as okayed by Tim Sullivan, that there was money involved that Rosenthal would receive to just get away from New York, lay low for a while, and then he could do whatever. The gunmen, as they're there, they're not even armed other than Whitey, they start walking away. From the building, they chicken out and say, "We're we're not going to do this." Valen is drunk or coked out of his mind, depending on who you want to believe. He starts saying, "You're you're not real muscle. If I had a gun, just you wait and see what I would do with with a gun. What I would do to him." And so Whitey hands him the gun and dares him, "What are you going to do with it?" According to Lines piecing together of the story, Valen tells Sam Sheps, the person that claims that he didn't see anything, he didn't hear anything, he didn't talk to anybody, it's Sam Sheps who's the mystery man that goes into the Metropole to tell Rosenthal to come out. And if we're going to believe the kidnapping angle, Rosenthal is expecting to be paid, Sam Sheps being the paymaster, quote unquote, mm-hmm. You know, he's already connected to money. If he is known as the guy that pays out I'm sure Rosenthal is gonna follow him because he's expecting fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. From Tim or from whoever. So that makes sense. And it's Valen that grabs Whitey's gun, shoots Rosenthal in the face as soon as he steps out, because he's just so I don't know, on drugs, hyped up, watches the whole kidnapping. The shooters are surprised by this whole thing so they start shooting allegedly to cover up the sound of the single shot because multiple shots sound like a car backfiring so nobody's going to really react as quickly that's the angle that a lot of the affidavits from the 20s and the 30s lean into it also doesn't help that max steuer as sleazebag defending the worst of the worst yeah But he was on the roster of Tim Sullivan's attorneys Mm. that Tim Sullivan paid for. According to Klein, District Attorney Whitman was quoted as saying, I know who the actual murderers are and we will have them soon, I'm sure. But if they can help the people get the men behind this thing, and if one of them can help me assure Becker's punishment and aid justice further, I have no hesitation in trying to get them clemency. Why punish the small fry? It's the big fish who should be worried. Mm. Ultimately, this is Whitman admitting that he's going for something higher up than Becker. Yeah. That there's something more to it. But if Becker's who he gets, if it's at that expense, then he's willing to take that. (sighs) This is such a frustrating case.
1: It really is. and. That's why we're here trying to clear Becker's name.
0: It's it's so obvious that he was framed. And so I think that we can we can go back to the question of why was it beneficial and who was it beneficial for to get rid of him. We talked about Tim Sullivan and Charles Murphy last time. Yes. Tim Sullivan was on the way out. He knew yeah. it. His boys knew it. There was this clinging to old ways. Here's the fun thing about mobsters who will do anything to protect their, their hide. Rose, Valen, and Sheps flip-flopped to whatever degree they needed to to save their lives. District Attorney Whitman took advantage of that. He gave them immunity he stacked the deck against becker with bringing in a judge who was already prejudiced against him from the lexo committee hearings uh into police corruption yep the, the way that the whole trial was was carried out was unconstitutional was was completely unfair and yet at that point already whitman had more power to decide whether becker got to live or die yeah the first trial we can say Was framed in a way to protect Tim Sullivan, to keep him out of the spotlight, because he was connected to Tammany. So it was all in the efforts of protecting Tammany. The second trial was protecting Whitman, because by that point he was already governor. He had already made it so high up the political ladder that he could absolutely not afford to have Becker go free. Yeah. We have so much going on in this story. And it all falls into place, and it's just so shitty. Yeah, yeah. And I get why Klein spent so much of his time publishing all of these books and these booklets and all of these things to try to clear Becker's name. He read lectures for law school students about fabricating evidence and condemning an innocent person. And then he was kind of discredited with the whole... Going down conspiracy theory, anti-Semitic, communist publications. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very easy to start considering conspiracies.
1: Yeah, this kind of stuff will can and will make you go crazy. Yeah. I am captivated by this story. Th- these are real people with real lives. These kind of things are still happening in the justice system today where innocent people are tried and are sacrificed to a degree that even people who have maintained innocence are still being sacrificed. Um, in Texas, there are a lot of states that, that no longer have death sentences, but Texas is one of the states where there is still a death sentence, where people, innocent people have received death sentences. Yeah. Even the acknowledgement of their innocence, when it has been proven, they because they still have a sentence on them, are still tied
0: to that sentence.
1: It's an ongoing thing, and the fight for justice continues.
0: Yeah. I think you've put it very well that it's it's really easy to dissociate the story from the fact that it's a real thing that happened. We read these books and we read these biographies and all these newspaper articles and, you know, what happened 112 years ago. It's so easy to think that this is in the past. This doesn't really matter anymore, right? But you're right. It's still happening. And it's so frustrating that it's happening now, that it happened then. And it's supposedly there's no fixing it. Yeah. Or that's very hard to fix. Yeah. Right. Right. Something that I came across that you might appreciate is something that Becker said to the priest that was taking his final confessions. Becker apparently became pretty religious near the end. He turned to Catholicism, but, you know, all things considered, yeah. with everything that we talked about, you'd, you'd try just about anything, right, to, to gain some sense of peace. But he said, God, in permitting me to die, must have some wise design. I must be dying for some purpose of God. And I don't know what that purpose is, but it is sufficient for me that the Almighty knows. No doubt my death is for the good of humanity. I'm sacrificed for my friends. And that's haunting. That at the end, he convinced himself that that it has to do some good somewhere for him to die. Yeah. So, we talked about doing this episode, calling it the Three Stooges episode originally. And I feel like this is our hardest yet. I don't know about you. It feels like there is
1: just such an anger that is associated with these three who corroborated, who had the intent of murder. Yeah. And they were the ones who got away with it. Yeah. And I think that's the most frustrating. Part of this,
0: I think that's it. Yeah, they got to live out their lives. They all died of old age. They didn't have a hit taken out on them. They didn't have somebody stab them in broad daylight in the in the street. There's so many stories with everybody that's involved in this case of untimely demises and just things going wrong. But except for these three. Yeah. And and even Weber, but definitely Rose Sheps and Valen. And what sucks is that I think Valen ended up outliving them all. Looking at dates of Klein's publications, it feels like he was waiting for most of them to pass before he could even publish certain things. So they continued to wield power for decades. And it's just so yeah, so frustrating. So I guess there's there's our list. <laughs> Becker didn't do it. Frank didn't do it. Frank wasn't even there. Lefty didn't do it. No. Harry didn't do it. Harry Horowitz. Whitey kind of sure. did it in that he egged Valin on. egged
1: Valin on for sure.
0: Yeah. He gave him the gun.
1: He didn't pull the trigger. He
0: wasn't the one that
1: pulled the trigger.
0: So then when when we get their testimonies, like we talked about in the Lennox Gang episode, when the four go to the electric chair, their reactions make sense. That they panic, that they cry, if Frank loses it, but they still go.
1: Poor boys. Those poor boys. Yeah. I mean, none of them, none of them were saints, but.
0: Well, yeah, that's it, right? Well, neither was Becker. <laughs> oh. But he didn't do yeah. this. Right, right. I mean, you could say most of the blood is on the DA's hands. Yeah, we'll get into that in another episode because we do have a whole roster of politicians and yes, corrupt officials and all of that that uh, we need to reel it in for this time. Yes, yes. We, we'll 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 uh, we'll tell more of that story. In the meantime, we're going to post some photos on the socials. We'll definitely post the group photo outside of the courthouse where we think it's Valen and his buddies. Uh, We'll have an episode later about Sam Paul. Sam is going to make an appearance. I think we're getting closer and closer to talking about our friend Jack. Mm -hmm. Got to talk about the funerals, the fallout, and Mrs. Becker too. Yes. Still want to have an episode on her and all the other ladies involved. Yes. Check out the socials, follow us, subscribe, share. It's been really wonderful to hear from our friends and listeners that are finding us in the world, which is super cool to to see that map. Um, So thank you for being here, for listening to us. If you want to ask any questions or contribute always, uh, we're available on the socials. You can send us an email, Podcast at gmail.com and we will be back next month.